Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live is a historian, a journalist, an author, and his background is in the newspaper business. He also helped found the magazine Mother Jones. He has an extraordinary memoir about growing up called Halfway Home that, in fact, Mary Gordon reviewed for the New York Times in 1986. <laughs> it all ties in together here, uh, which is the story of being the only child of, a, of an older couple and his upbringing. He grew up in, in very well-to-do surroundings, and in part later in life, he visited South Africa, and he saw what some of that money came from, and it's in many ways changed the way he thinks about the, uh, the world, and which I think led to his, his work in... Uh, in the, in the journalistic world, but he has become uh, a really wonderful uh, historian, too, along the way, although he's written interesting articles about what it is to be a so-called amateur historian versus the professional historians of academe and had various debates going on about this. Uh, his other books include The Mirror at Midnight, A South African Journey, The Unquiet Ghost, Russians Remember Stalin, Finding the Trapdoor, Essays, Portraits, and Travels, King Leopold's Ghost, Ghosts or themes in these books here. A story of greed, terror, and heroism in colonial Africa, and a really remarkable book if you've not had the chance to read it. And what is the connection between bicycle tires and massacres in Africa? And King Leopold, and a U.S. senator who is a lobbyist for Belgium. And, well, anyway, it's uh, Bury the Chains, Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free an Empire's Slaves, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918, is his current history, and to uh, to quote one of his uh, figures that he writes about, a man named Milne, it's also about a peace to end peace, because the war led to the Treaty of Versailles, which led to the rise once again of Germany in World War II. Will you please welcome Adam Hochschild to West Coast Live. This is nominally about 1914 to 1918, but it's as much about 2011 as it is about 1878 and, and prior, and the Roman Empire is the British Empire, the American Empire? Well, I think when you write about war, unfortunately there are continuities that go back for several thousands of years and that uh, still seem with us in the present. But the First World War has always fascinated me particularly. I've really had a lifelong obsession with it because it was the largest war that had ever happened on earth up to that point in time. Killed about 20 million people, military and civilian. More than six times the death toll of the previous largest war in Europe, the Napoleonic era. Uh, and it was needless. It was not necessary. It was not fought for any great principle. So I've always been fascinated by the enthusiasm with which both sides uh, marched into this uh, orgy of destruction, and also been intrigued by the people on both sides who at the time saw that this was madness and refused to fight. And that's what this book is in part about. This book took you six years to write. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that covers a vast range of subjects that's been covered in poetry, in fiction, in history. Barbara Tuckman's 1914. Um, and yet, 
despite everything that you've said about the war, it is not one of the favored three subjects of book publishers who want the Founding Fathers, World War II, and the Civil War. Uh, why is it we want to overlook these other conflicts, uh, Belgian Congo, uh, you know, Stalin's terror? I mean, why is it you're writing about them? You know? Well, I like to find those pieces of history that uh, where there have not been uh, huge numbers of other people plowing over that same territory. I think it's very difficult to find something new to say about the Founding Fathers, for example. And you can see why that's a favorite subject, because it's a matter of self-congratulation. Uh, the First World War, though, is something that gets written about and talked about uh, much more in the countries where it caused a, a vastly lar larger death toll than it did in the U.S. For the U.S., in historical terms, it was a fairly minor thing because we came in very late to the war, and relatively speaking, the casualties that American forces suffered were much lower than those of other countries. But uh, it was a deeply scarring thing for most of the major countries in Europe that took part. I mean, look at France, for example. Uh, of all the young men who were aged uh, 20 to 32 in 1914 when the war began, one half were dead when it was over. And many of the remainder were gravely wounded, uh, you know, missing hands, arms, legs, eyes, genitals. Uh, and so the war was a, was a horribly scarring thing for all of these European countries that took part. The observation's been made, I think, both at the time that it would take generations to recover and also subsequently, like it also, genetically wiped out huge amounts of the gene pools of these countries, of, of all classes of people. Of all classes, but this is another thing that fascinates me about the war, uh, the First World War. Uh, today, we are usually accustomed to the poor doing most of the dying in our wars. You look at uh, casualties in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, for the most part, they are not the sons and daughters of senators and congressmen and CEOs. The First World War, it was the opposite because it was, you know, the, the, the done thing in upper classes uh, among the aristocracy on both sides for uh, young men to become officers, and it was those young officers, captains and lieutenants, who led their men out of the trenches uh, into this hail of machine gun fire and shrapnel from the other side, and they died in much larger proportions. Uh, of men who graduated from Oxford in 1913, 31% uh, were dead by the end of the war. Uh, you know, in the British aristocracy, this book, uh, To End All Wars, focuses mainly on Britain. Uh, look at the great aristocratic families uh, for example, Lord Salisbury, who was Prime Minister of England for many years at the turn of the century and the patriarch of the Cecil family, one of the great landed families, had ten grandsons. Five of them were killed in the war, and one of them, George Cecil, is a character in this book. And Rudyard Kipling, one of the great Bellicose patriots, uh, lost his son in the war and, in fact, still doesn't, uh, didn't know at the time of his death where his son had died. It was one of 400,000 unknown British soldier deaths. That's right. Uh, Rudyard Kipling was always a big drumbeater for any war that Britain was in, which by definition was right and had to be won. And he always encouraged uh, you know, military enthusiasm in his young son, John. There's a haunting picture of John Kipling 
at the age of four holding a rifle that is bigger than he is tall. Uh, John inherited his father's bad eyesight. You know, when you see pictures of Rudyard Kipling, he always has these very thick glasses like the bottoms of Coke bottles. Had a terrible time getting into the military, but his dad pulled strings, talked to a field marshal he knew, and finally, uh, much to the satisfaction of both father and son, young John got a commission as an officer. Uh, and in 1915, went into action at the Battle of Luz and was never seen again. This story is immense, it's huge. I mean, one of the ways that you chose to grapple with the story of the war and the people and the confluences is to pick out certain individuals and tell their stories. Uh, one of them is uh, Sir John French, he later became Sir John French, uh, and then his sister who was one of the major pacifists and uh, war resistors in England. What a fascinating family that could tolerate this. Well. Here's what I was wrestling with when trying to figure out how to tell the story, because in To End All Wars, I really wanted to retell the story of the First World War, not as a battle between two sides, but as a battle between people who felt it was a noble and necessary crusade and people who felt it was absolute madness. And that split existed on both sides in the war, but it was most dramatic in, in England where 20,000 men of military age refused to go into the British Army and about 6,000 of them refusing conscientious objector, alternative service, driving ambulances and whatnot, about 6,000 of them went to prison. So how could I get people like this, the war resistors and the pacifists, and the generals and cabinet ministers who orchestrated this war into the same book? Uh, I couldn't figure this out for the longest time, and then one day I was reading a rather boringly written academic article about a famous woman pacifist, Charlotte Despard, who wrote a best-selling anti-war pamphlet, uh, traveled up and down Britain throughout the war, urging people not to fight, uh, visited conscientious objectors in prison, and in one sentence in passing, this uh, scholar who was writing about her said, uh, of course, these activities of Mrs. Despard were deeply distressing to her brother, Sir John French. Sir John French, I recognize the name, Commander-in-Chief on the Western Front. So I thought, this is a relationship I can have some fun describing. And that gave me the idea of trying to tell the story through finding other divided families. So I found several other families that were also bitterly divided uh, by the war. And the book sort of focuses on these three families or family groups and brings in some other characters who are connected in one way or another to those families. One of the elements that you capture well is sort of in a way how everyone, military and civilians, were taken by surprise by this war. They sort of surprised themselves to find this in it. I was thinking of A.S. Byatt's novel, The Children's Book, which takes another group, the sort of the Bloomsbury era, and, and goes through the age of silver and gold and of the crafts, and then it ends with the age of iron. The war suddenly sort of shows up, and all this beautiful world of, of Europe is suddenly destroyed by this. Uh, the British leaders still believed in cavalry. They wanted the lance to be the weapon. They were unprepared for machine guns that could fire eight rounds a second. Well, actually, both sides were completely unprepared, and I think one reason was that the leading generals, both in the British Army, French Army, and also in the German Army, had cut their teeth in colonial wars, where in previous decades they were fighting against very poorly armed Africans and Asians. 
and almost always it was the European power that had the machine gun, had the repeating rifle, uh, and all sorts of other technology, and these rebellious natives, as they thought of them, who didn't. So they went to war in 1914 without really planning for the fact that the other side would have machine guns. The Germans invaded France in 1914 with uh, eight cavalry divisions, 40,000 horses. And you can imagine how useless a cavalry charge is against an entrenched machine gun. Not to mention barbed wire, another technology which had been around for some decades. They just didn't plan on this. They, their heads were filled on both sides with these dreams of glorious cavalry charges. And uh, they ran up against a very cold reality where the war quickly became one fought from trenches and with all kinds of horrible new weapons that nobody had imagined, poison gas, flamethrowers, and much more. It was uh, a horrible side of the human inventive capability to come up with these devices. It was. And that was something that made me admire all the more the people who resisted this madness uh, and whom I've tried to highlight uh, in the book. Uh, one of my favorite characters, one of the people I admire most from this, this period is the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, really his country's uh, most uh, famous philosopher at this time, who spent six months in prison for his opposition to the war. And he wrote about it afterwards in a very moving and to me very intellectually honest way where he said, you know, standing out against the madness that was in the air took every fiber of my being. It was like resisting great hunger or great sexual passion when everybody around you was caught up in this war enthusiasm. And he acknowledged, he said, you know, love of England is very nearly the strongest emotion I possess, and I desired the defeat of Germany as much as any retired colonel, but I knew that this war was not being fought for any great purpose, and that those of us who felt this way had to stand firm. He did. He went to prison, as did many other people. He says here, uh, and this is the, the passage which you've been, you've been citing here, as a lover of truth, the national propaganda of the belligerent nation sickened me. As a lover of civilization, the return to barbarism appalled me. As a man of thwarted paternal feeling, he has yet had no children, the massacre of the young wrung my heart, and this war is trivial for all its vastness. And yet he has to balance this with his loyalties toward his country and his desire to see Germany defeated. I mean, so that captures the pull. And yet for some people, the conscientious objectors, they went one way. Others either chose the combat, the glory of it. The young people wrote about the thrill of going into battle uh, and how exciting it was. They felt it was like a polo match at first. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you find the one type of person who appreciates the other. Uh, one of the divided families I, I focus on in the book, for example, is an old English family, the Hobhouses. Uh, Stephen Hobhouse was a conscientious objector uh, who not only went to prison, but spent most of his time in prison in solitary confinement because he was leading a protest against prison rules. One of the rules in British prisons at that point was what they call the rule of silence, where you were not... Uh, allowed to speak to your fellow prisoners. And he said, I want to talk to my fellow human beings and you can't stop me. So they threw him in solitary. He had three brothers in uniform. Two of them were at the front. Uh, one of them, Paul Hobhouse, was later killed. But before he was killed, he wrote home to his parents 
and said, tell Stephen not to lose heart. There was a great deal of that sense of, of keeping heart, of keeping faith, whether you were a conscientious objector or whether you were a soldier on the front line. What was it that kept the soldiers who, you know, in battle staying there with their friends? Uh, some would return to England and found they couldn't speak of the war when they were at home. They wanted to be back at the front with their friends. That's where they knew their fate was. Well, I think it's what uh, Eric Greitens was talking about a moment ago. Um, when uh, you're in the military, when you're in a war, and I've been in the military myself, but not in, the, not in a war, happily, uh, but you are thinking about those people on either side of you. Uh, armies function because they uh, weld their soldiers into units, uh, they make people feel responsible for their fellow soldiers, for the person who's in the line beside them. And when you're thinking that way, you both don't have the, the time and you don't have sort of the emotional time to think about what are the purposes for which I'm being ordered to march into this hail of machine gun fire. You're just looking at the people on either side of you and, you know, knowing that they would help you if you fell and if they fall, you've got to help them. You, uh, you cite uh, a former Anglican lay missionary describing the moment of turning over a position in the trenches to new troops. There's something highly exhilarating about handing over. One feels superior in knowledge and experience, anxious not to put the wind up the newcomer unduly, yet not adverse to impressing him with the bloodiness of the place. Here they snipe during the day. By that big coil of wire over there, the Bosches creep out at night and so on. The doings of the last few dairies, terrifying at the time, assume quite rosy colors. But it's all right, one hastens to add. It's quite cushy, really. There is nothing really to worry about. Oh, no, says the newcomer, rather uncertainly. That's right. You always want to make the, the, uh, the newcomer feel that you're much more battle-hardened and braver than, than, than he is. It also, the war also set up a, a major division. Robert Graves' wonderful book, Goodbye to All That, in which he says he, can't, he, he couldn't live in England anymore. He had to retreat and eventually went to Mallorca to run his poetry career, but he served in the Irish Fusiliers and, and saw this war firsthand, but he also saw the craziness of the behavior, but also the strange uh, gung-ho-ness of the people who were still in England and didn't understand what the trenches were. Well, Graves is an interesting case because his is one of the greatest memoirs of this war. Uh, and, you know, he at one point he was back home in England on leave. He'd been wounded, I think, and he pulled every string he could have, he could find to return to the front, even though at the time and for the rest of his life, he was convinced that the war was not fought for any meaningful purpose. Uh, his good friend, Siegfried Sassoon, very famous, another famous poet and a famous case of war resistance, Siegfried Sassoon came home uh, in the middle of the war, wounded, wrote a letter to the newspaper saying this war is not being fought for, for any uh, major purpose and uh, you know, we shouldn't be fighting it. The government very cleverly didn't prosecute him but rather sent him off to a, a hospital for uh, psychiatrically ill uh, officers, which he was not really. After three months in the hospital, he went back to his unit in France. He said, my, my place is with my men. So this sort of instinct for human solidarity is always overcoming any kind of rational thinking about what is the purpose for which this war is being fought. Tell me about the man Rochester who wrote a letter protesting the war and what he saw and later tried to do. 
Oh, this was one of my favorite characters. It's so much fun when you're writing a book like this and you can get into people's lives through the evidence they've left behind, through letters, through diaries, and sometimes through other means as well. One of my great sources of information here were the reports of military intelligence and Scotland Yard investigators who tailed all these anti-war dissidents very closely and intercepted their mail and snooped on them in every possible way. Uh, one of the wonderful voices from, from that era is a, a man named Albert Rochester who was a labor union activist Unlike many other radical labor unionists at the time, he enlisted in the military. He believed the war had to be fought. But when he found himself in the British Army on the Western Front in France, he was enraged to find that every British officer was assigned a private servant, a Batman, as they were called, um, and whose principal duty was to make the officer his tea and shine his boots and so forth. And he wrote a letter to the Daily Mail the London Daily Mail, protesting this and saying, you know, if this rule were changed and uh, all of these private servants were uh, sent to the front, it would give us uh, 60,000 more men and we could end this war much more quickly. Letter was interrupted by the censor and Rochester was sentenced to 90 days in prison for having, you know, written this letter. He protested in vain, he said, look, I was just home in London on leave, I could have taken it to the Daily Mail then. Uh, but nonetheless, he was sent to prison. And as a military prisoner, one thing he had to do was he was thrown in a cell with three soldiers who were sentenced to be shot the next morning at dawn for having uh, disobeyed orders and fled from the front line at the time of a German attack. And he felt anguished. He spent the whole night sharing a cell with these men. They were fellow labor unionists as he was. Uh, and then he had to be present as a witness at their execution. He actually was assigned to dig the holes in the ground where the posts were placed that they were tied to to be shot. And this completely changed his feelings about the war. And after the war, he devoted himself to trying to um, get the, all these men who had been executed during the war pardoned. And that became one of the sort of symbolic ways in which many people in Britain expressed their feelings about the war in decades since then. The book is To End All Wars, a story of loyalty and rebellion. It talks about Irish rule. It talks about the Pankhurst, women's suffrage, so much more. Adam Hochschild, thank you very much for being on West Coast Live. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And that's today's West Coast Live. Journalist and historian Adam Hochschild, his new book, To End All Wars, a story of loyalty and rebellion. You can find out more information about us at wcl.org. Until next time, this is Sedge Thompson. Safe journey.